When we first started supporting Sarah, I believe she was heading to Indonesia, and so we were supporting her there. Now she's back here, and so we see all of these faces. And in God's amazing economy, I believe all of you who give to support missions in this church have a part in all of that, and uh, that's, that's quite an amazing and a wonderful thing. I was uh, intrigued watching some of the things that they were being trained to do, soldering and things like that. I know I've asked you this question before, and I don't remember your answer. Do you know a fellow by the name of John Stavropoulos? Yeah. John Stavropoulos was the first missionary that we supported from uh, New Tribes, which is now Ethnos 360. And by the way, I liked New Tribes better. I, I don't like that Ethnos. I can't. That doesn't come off my tongue properly. But anyway, John was the first one. Some of you have met him and remember him. I remember when he came back from one class where he had learned to fill teeth. They had trained him in filling teeth because he, where he was going, that might be a need. And I remember in one of his prayer letters, him writing back saying, I got to fill my first tooth today. So they trained them in all kinds of interesting things. Uh, if you want to help support, we'll, of course, be providing uh, a love offering for Sarah to pay for her expenses and things today and help her with her ministry. If you want to give to that, uh, just drop it in one of the offering boxes and make sure you mark her name on it or missionary or something like that. And then she'll be around at her table and you can join us for cookies. She'll be out there and uh, you get to talk to her a little bit more. Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14. I want to begin reading in verse number 3. We're just going to read a few verses. And then I want to speak briefly today on the topic, Leave Her Alone. Mark chapter 14, verse number 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Father, we're thankful for this passage. Help us now as we spend these few moments thinking about it and working through it. Fill me with your spirit. Forgive me for anything that would hinder my usefulness. Help me, Lord, today to just preach the word as you have laid on my heart and preach it clearly and accurately and practically, boldly where I need to. And, Lord, I just pray that you'll guide and direct. So bless this time. Speak to us through this woman. In Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody know what this beeping is up here? Anybody beeping out there? So it is up here somewhere. Okay, that's going to drive me insane. It doesn't take much to drive me insane. The story that we just read took place shortly before the cross. It took place in a town called Bethany, as you read right there. Bethany was the city of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It was, if we, if we do ever go to Israel, which we're thinking and praying about, if we ever do that, uh, we'll probably see that town. They usually take you to Bethany, and they take you to what they call Lazarus' tomb. But, of course, we don't know if it's Lazarus' tomb at all. 
but uh, it's, it's at least representative of that. So you get to see that. Uh, Bethany was the scene of one of Jesus' most uh, amazing miracles when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And we read about that in John chapter 11. So that's where they were. The venue was the house of a fellow by the name of Simon. Simon the leper. He was an unknown. We don't really know anything else about him. But he was most likely healed leper. It seems unlikely that he would have been hosting a meal in his home if he was not a healed leper. He would have been a social outcast and not able to do such a thing. But we really don't know anything about him. We, the, the, there, were, there were three primary people or groups of people sitting around the table in his home. First, there was Jesus himself. Then there was this woman. And finally, uh, there were the disciples. So I want us to think about all of them for a few moments this morning and see if we can learn something from them. Let's think, first of all, about the woman. Who was she? First question we've got to ask, who was she? She's not named in this particular passage. But we do know from the other gospel accounts, primarily John's account, uh, where he described this meeting, that this was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And let me read a little bit of that passage. It says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So we know it was Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha, and Lazarus. And Mary is one of the most wonderful people in the Bible. We don't have a whole lot of information on Mary, but she's mentioned three times, I believe, in the Bible. And every time that she is mentioned, she is at the feet of Jesus Christ. Every single time. She was always there at his feet, worshiping, listening, hearing, learning from him. And so here she was again. Notice what she did now in verse number three. She came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. The perfume that she poured on his head, if you could just imagine, it was extremely expensive. 300 denarii would have been nearly a year's wage for the average worker uh, during that time. And she took it and poured it all on Jesus' head. John's Gospel notes that she not only poured it on his head, she also poured it on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And so there she was again at the feet of Jesus. Clearly it was not something you would see every day, was it? It was somewhat of an unusual event. It was surprising. It was extravagant. It was in many ways different. And that leads us to notice the disciples. The disciples and what they did. Verse number 4, there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? That word must have just hung in the air. Think about that word as applied to what happened right here. Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. They were indignant. They murmured. They talked about her amongst themselves, and they criticized her. 
Would we ever do such a thing? Surely not. We would never do that. I mean, at first glance, their response seems somewhat reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, imagine. Imagine if the elders and I were to decide that we were going to liquidate all of the church funds and we were going to go out and we were going to purchase a diamond-studded gold chandelier to replace the ancient brass one that is hanging right there. Now, we don't have enough church funds to do that. This is purely an example. But just imagine if we were to do such a thing. Would you not be somewhat upset about that? Would you not take a little bit of offense at that? Would you not think it excessive? Would not some of you complain and object? Of course you would. John's account gives some additional detail here that helps us. Here, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? So John tells us that Judas was the one who started this. He was the ringleader. He was the one who objected. And then the rest of them jumped on the bandwagon with him. They all listened to and followed along with this thief and betrayer. And they turned on Mary, turning their critical comments on her. We could spend a lot of time talking about Mary's actions here. We could spend a lot of time talking about the disciples' actions here. But really the most impressive and interesting part of this story to me is uh, what Jesus did. What Jesus did. I, I came upon this passage this past Tuesday. We were having our discipleship meeting on my back porch. And uh, we were talking about this passage, and it has stuck in my mind ever since. Uh, What Jesus did here is amazing. Notice verse number 6. Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. Jesus did a lot of things here, but the first thing he did was he defended her. I find that a fascinating, fascinating verse. Leave her alone. I know our King James, New King James Bible says, let her alone. Every other translation says, leave her alone. He defended her. When I, when I read something like this, I, I confess this is just something that I do, and maybe some of you do it too, but I like to put myself in the room. You ever try to do that? Put yourself in the room and try to imagine what you would have seen there, see what it would have been like. Can you picture this one? Can you put yourself in that room and think about this scene for just a moment? Because it's quite an amazing one. Stand over in a corner with me just for a moment and listen and watch. You see, first, I think, if we were standing in that room, we would have heard the normal small talk that would occur in any such gathering around a table. We'd have seen people passing plates. We'd have seen people eating, talking about their day, just small talk. We would be trying to pick up bits and pieces of the conversation, and uh, this would go on for a while, and then all of a sudden we would notice Mary walk into the room. She would be carrying this ornate box of perfume. And while all this conversation was going on around her, while some people maybe weren't even paying attention, she would have walked over to Jesus, opened up the box, and poured it all over his head. If they didn't see it, they certainly would have smelled it because it would have filled the entire room with the perfume. And so as everybody came to notice what was going on, the conversation would kind of die down, wouldn't it? Maybe almost to a silence, an astonished silence. And then this low murmur would have started. 
You can imagine this, this low murmur as one person would turn to the next and whisper. And then the whispers would get louder. And then, somewhere along the line, Judas would have spoke up and said, What in the world is the purpose of this waste? Again, that word just just jumps out at me. And then, while the cacophony of voices was loudest, while they were criticizing and probably by this time speaking quite loudly, there was one other voice that spoke up, and I believe it would have brought an absolute quivering silence to the room, and that was Jesus Christ saying, Leave her alone. Do you not wonder how he said it? Do you not wonder? I mean, were they spoken quietly? Leave her alone. Were they shouted? Leave her alone! I can imagine either being the case. I tend to think the latter is probably the, the, the reality because there would have been noise in the room, and I think he had to shout them down. His words, whether they were shouted or whether they were whispered or whatever they were, they were a defense of her, in defense of her actions. I don't know about you, but I think it is such a wonderful thought that here was a believer doing something for Jesus. Others didn't get it. Others didn't agree with it. And Jesus defended her. He came to her defense. I I am so wondrously encouraged by that. It reminds me of the account of Stephen. You remember the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7? Stephen was the first martyr. He was dragged before the authorities for preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And he stood before his accusers. And right before they stoned him, he gave one of the greatest uh, sermons that you find in all of the Bible. And when he gave the invitation, here was their response. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. I'm glad you don't do that to me on an invitation. They gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I am struck by so many things in that passage, but I'm really struck by Jesus' actions in that moment. I don't know if you caught it or not, but did you see what Jesus was doing? It says, Stephen, being full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus standing. Does that mean anything to you? Is there anything special about that? I think there's something special about that. I mean, look down uh, just a few verses to chapter uh, in the same chapter we're in. Look down at verse number 61. 61, when he's, Jesus is now on trial before the high priest. Verse number 61, he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the normal thing that we read of Jesus. Once he ascended and went back to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
We see that in Colossians chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. We read the same thing in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 12. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So why then did Stephen see him standing? Well, there's theories. There's things that people have thought through. Some say he stood to welcome his faithful servant home. And that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? Praise the Lord for that thought. Others think that he was standing in judgment of and in defense of Stephen. And that's a wonderful thought, too. He rose to Stephen's defense. Brothers and sisters, when we do something for him, and we think nobody sees He sees. When all others think us crazy for what we do to serve and worship Jesus, we have Him who sees, who stands for us, who is our defender. Glory to God. He defended her. Hmm. Makes me want to shout. It's a wonderful thought. And He did so because He appreciated what she did, knew she had done it for Him. She has done a good work for me, he said in verse number 6. She has done what she could, he said in verse number 8. In his eyes, what she did was good. And he recognized and knew that what she did, she did for him. He defended her. He did something else, too. He gently rebuked them. He rebuked them. Look at verse number 7. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. Now, perhaps my imagination is running away with me here. It does happen from time to time. It's possible it's happening again. But I think I do see at least a mild rebuke here. I think he was hinting at I think he was poking at the fact that what they seemed so piously concerned about, helping the poor, was something they weren't doing themselves. There are plenty of poor. You could do something about it any time, is how I might paraphrase that particular passage. He didn't explicitly say it, but had I been one of the disciples, I think that's what I would have read between the lines and heard him saying to me. There's plenty of poor. You could do something for them anytime. You guys could indeed do more. Nothing's stopping you from serving as you so loudly proclaim she should. So why aren't you? It's interesting, isn't it, how the ones who complain are also usually the ones who abstain. I had a pastor. I've mentioned him before. Brother Phil knows him. His name's Gary Price. He had a good illustration of this one time. I don't remember what this meeting was that we were having, but some kind of a leadership meeting or something. And he was sharing this illustration and he drew a circle on a whiteboard. And then in that circle, he drew a bunch of dots. And he just said that the circle is just basically the work of God and the dots are the people, the workers, the servants of God. And then outside of the circle, he drew one or two other dots. And he said the reality is that people who are busy in the service of God, those inside the circle, don't have time for complaining. They don't see things to complain about. They see the person next to them that's working, and they're all working together. The people outside the circle, the people who aren't engaged inside the circle doing the work of God, they're the ones who can see inside and see the whole thing and have things to complain about. I've never forgot that illustration because I think it's true. I think it's true. A former co-worker used to say, I worked with her at Hiram, she used to say, there's doers and then there's spewers. 
And I've always liked that one too. In other words, there are those who do things, who get stuff done, and there are those who simply talk about it. And sadly, the latter category is often the larger of the two. Jesus told a parable about this. He said, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. Not the one who talked the good game, but didn't follow through. That was not the one. No, rather the one who might have hesitated at first, but in the end actually did something for the Lord. Teddy Roosevelt famously said, we've all heard this quote many times, but it's a classic. He said, it is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Yeah, I think Jesus was poking at these pious loudmouths here. And as gently as only he could do, I think he was rebuking them for criticizing the one in the room who was actually doing something while they sat there munching their food, doing nothing. He did something else. He, he reminded them here also of their priority, of what ought to be their first love. Verse number 7, again, you have the poor with, me all, with you always, and whenever you wish you may do them good, but me you do not have always. Me is, I believe, an absolutely key word in that particular verse. Me you do not have always. Contrast that word with that word waste earlier on and it's an amazing contrast if you can meditate on for just a little bit of me you do not have always mary always seemed cognizant of this she had the right priority she stayed close to jesus she was always at his feet and he commended her for that i don't i don't remember if we read this one or not before but luke chapter 10 i don't think i read this one it says, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her she has chosen the good part she has made the right choice mary's priorities are the right priorities she gets it she gets it in jesus reminder to the disciples me you do not have always he was reminding them that that is where their focus needed to be on him as mary's was who cares about perfume him that was the focus. It's so easy, isn't it, to lose focus. It's so easy for us to get distracted, to forget the important things, to drift from our moorings. 
We all do it. Get our eyes off him. It happened to the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 and 4. The writer of Hebrews wrote, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lie aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. There it is. Looking unto Jesus. Eyes on Him. Mary got that. She got that. Stephen Lawson said the greatest, strongest Christian is the weakest one who latches hold of Christ. In other words... We are strong when we stick close to Him. He is our everything. He is what matters. Mary got that. Jesus had to remind the others around the table that Mary, that what Mary alone seemed to grasp, me you do not have always. He saw what she did, appreciated what she did. She's done a good work for me. She's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. I've shared this before because we've looked at this before. We looked at this passage when we preached through Mark some, some years back. But I love how a fellow by the name of Ivor Powell described her insights here in his commentary in a, his, the, that is entitled uh, Mark's Superb Gospel. Powell said this. He said, She listened as the Lord quietly spoke to the audience, but with intuition inherent in women, saw the lines etching his face, and read aright the problems reflected in his eyes. An inner sense told her the disciples were wrong in expecting a kingdom. The master meant what he had uttered. He was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. She could not understand this. The whole idea seemed terrible, but nevertheless it was true. Mary had no desire to wait and give floral tributes at his funeral. What she had to give should be given immediately. There was no time to be lost. Well, one more thing that Jesus did bears mentioning, and that is uh, in verse number 9. He promised reward for what she did. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. She will be remembered. She will be praised. People will one day understand and appreciate what she did here. And, of course, that happened, didn't it? This story is in, uh, well, I don't like the word story, this account is in three of the four Gospels, and uh, she has been remembered ever since. But I think Jesus' promise there has a, a broader application, which applied beyond her. I think he was saying that what she did had eternal ramifications and promised eternal rewards. In the movie Gladiator, Maximus Decimus Meridius has a line. He says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And I think that's what Jesus was saying to her. And I think he says the same thing to us. Well, there are so many applications we could make from this. So many. But let me just make three quickly. The first application I would say is uh, could be summed up with these two words. Head high. Head high. If you are one who, like Mary, does what you can for Jesus, hold your head high. And know this, Jesus sees. He sees what you're doing, no matter how small. Others may criticize how you spend your time. Some may think you are shirking on other duties uh, that they consider more important. They may turn away from you. They may laugh at you. They may talk about you unkindly. But who cares what such think? 
Remember always what Jesus thinks. Hear his words to the critics. Leave her alone. That's such a wonderful sentence. Leave her alone and hold your head high as you serve the king, knowing that if the whole world thinks you're nuts, the king of kings thinks you're great. And the king of kings defends you. And always will. So head high, that's the first. Second is right prize. Work for the right prize. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. We sing that all the time. How is it that so many who call themselves Christians can sing those words, but live so very differently from those words? How is it that so many can do so little of eternal value in the time that they have here? How is it that lawns and, oh, I don't know, bank accounts and houses and cars and sports and travel and... Well, you get the picture. How is it that such temporal things, which God has plainly said, He is going to destroy forever, how is it that they become the prize for us? Mary worked for the right prize. She kept an eternal perspective. And oh, that we would too. Oh, that we would remember always that Jesus sees what we do for him no matter how small and promises reward. Let that reward be what we seek, that right prize, what we strive for, what we run toward. Luke chapter 18, Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Work for the right prize. And then finally, the last one, and this might be redundant, I don't know, but it's just the words, get it. Get it. We've talked about it all through, but it it bears repeating, as did Mary. Let us determine to know what's important and do that. Do that. Time is so short. Jesus is coming again. The trumpet is being tuned as we speak. I I think signs of the times have never been more clear than they are today. I believe more than ever that you and I are the generation that will meet Jesus in the air. I really believe that. I know we're not supposed to set dates and times. Nonetheless, I really believe that. I believe time is nearly up. Do we want to focus on the things of this world which will soon no longer even exist? Or do we want to work for the things that Jesus said are important? Pour out our time and our talent and our effort on serving Him. Get it, Christian. Have right priorities. I just read this somewhere just this week. Twenty years from now, the only people who remember that you worked late are your kids. It's true. We need to get it. We need to get it as Mary got it. And finally, let me, let me just make one very targeted application <coughs> oh, excuse me, to all of the people who labored this week in VBS. What a great week this was in VBS. I believe this was the best VBS that we've ever had. We had more kids. We had some who professed Christ. We had a wonderful group of people who came out and worked. I saw it, and 
I know Jesus did infinitely more so. How hard some of you worked. Some worked for months leading up to it. Others worked hard every night this week. I saw some who were on the edge of some frayed nerves. Uh, I, I saw it. You may have been weary. You may have been exhausted. Uh, you, you may have fended off some criticism, I don't know, of those who thought you were spending too much time at the church to the neglect of other things. You may have even fought off discouraging thoughts of, is this really worth it? And does it really matter? Some of you had to let your lawns grow this week because you were busy here. Some of you didn't get to sit on your deck those evenings because you were here with an absolute mob of unruly kids. Some of you missed your daily walk or your me time and your lazy boy. Some of you fended off critics in your own family. But you, VBS workers, can hold your head high. Others might have had prettier lawns and less stress last week. But you have the praise and approval and defense of the King of Kings. You have eternal reward. Kids trusted Christ this week. You were part of that. Christ's kingdom grew this week. And you were part of that. You worked toward the right prize this week. You got it. And understood what matters. Praise God for such as you. For such as Mary. She did what she could. She got it. And so too did you.